So today is the last Sunday of our sermon series called The Beautiful Mind, where we've been exploring uh, mental health and faith and how the two intersect. And so today I thought it would be helpful uh, to invite a couple folks from our church who work in the mental health profession to talk about their own experience of those intersections of bringing together mental health and faith. And so um, today, and, and, and so I will be in conversation with them and ask a few questions that I'll be asking them. For those of you who've been here before and we've done something like this, uh, you may remember last month we had the president of the Spurtis Institute with us too. And so I forgot to actually give um, Matt my phone number. And so uh, I'll say it for you now, for those who don't have it, and you can text me during this conversation. If there is a question that comes up in your own mind that you would like these folks to reflect on, uh, you are welcome to do that. I can't guarantee 100% that I will use it, uh, but uh, we have somewhat of a time limit. So before, or as we uh, get into this, then let me uh, bring up a couple folks from our uh, congregation. So first, I'm gonna invite uh, Robert Rodriguez to come up. Robert uh, is a psychologist, has a practice in the loop, uh, and has been a part of Urban Village for quite some time, almost near the beginning. So you can come up, Robert, and have a seat. And so uh, Robert also lives in the South Loop too, and so it's been a really a wonderful part of our community. And then Susan Duma, also I'm gonna invite Susan to come up. Susan also is a psychologist. Her practice is called Collective Hope. It's located in the West Loop. Uh, Susan and her husband John are fairly new uh, attendees of Urban Village, uh, but it's been great to have them be part of this community. And uh, there is grace and forgiveness at Urban Village because last Sunday I called Susan by her last name and she still showed up today. So grace abounds here at Urban Village, uh, as does forgiveness. Uh, and so we are really happy to have them both here. And also just one other quick announcement too. When they're done, we have some folks, uh, we'd invite some folks from uh, other mental health practices in the Chicago area to be here for kind of a mental health fair. That's immediately after worship today. So some folks have, uh, we'll be at tables out here. We have some really wonderful homemade cupcakes made by Emily Bauer. Hallelujah. Uh, uh, that's right. <laughs> so you can stick around for that uh, and then to engage in some conversation with the folks we have represented uh, here today too. Um, so Robert and Susan, thank you so much for being here today. And before we start reflecting a little bit on this passage that, uh, that we heard today and uh, some of the things we've been talking about in the sermon series, um, I always tell folks, often for folks in the ministry, they talk about a calling, and I think sometimes people think that only clergy have a call, but I believe that all of us have a call of some sort or another, regardless of what we do in our life. Uh, and so um, uh, that is not the National Suicide Provision Online. Yeah. Uh, 5485 are the last, oh, got it. I'm sorry. Um, and uh, uh, I believe we're all called in some way. Uh, no matter what we do in our lives. So I wanted to ask Robert and Susan first to talk a little bit about your own calling. What was it that led you to decide to go into the field of psychology? Um, hi, I'm Susan. Hi. hi. Um, so yeah, this thing about calling is really interesting. Um, I think for a long time, I knew that I wanted to be in the helping profession, and I, maybe like many people, had a circuitous route to get where I am now. So it started, um, actually I was headed to med school, and then um, was, was uh, really compelled to sit with people on a different level and it be more emotional and more relational. Part of what I've come to appreciate is 
the role of the Trinity and how that is an inherent relationship and how how much love is there and healing can be found there. And so I think about that in my own practice as I'm, as I'm sitting with somebody. And so that's played a part in my, in my call to be a clinical psychologist. But really, it's just sitting with people in a time of hurt and need. I, I felt I was called to uh, report the news in, in, initially, so <laughs> I, uh, it surprises you me. You mean like the literal, not the good news, but <laughs> the good news. <laughs> Just like the, the you know, um, yeah, like... I can, uh, Anderson, yeah. you have an Anderson Cooper kind of vibe. <laughs> <laughs> I so I actually studied journalism in, in undergraduate school, and I started as a broadcast journalism major, but very quickly became kind of disillusioned with the idea of taking the complexity of a story and trying to tell it in 30 seconds or a minute. And so I went over to PR and did that for a little while just to not lose too many credits. But at, at some point, I was hanging out with a lot of social work graduate students. I was dating someone who was in, in, in graduate school in social work, and I was hearing all this talk of psychotherapy and, and counseling and, and, and mental health treatment, and it really appealed to me. And so uh, I think the connection between that intrigue, you know, that sounding interesting, becoming a client myself at a, at a time of need and really uh, finding the process uh, very healing. Uh, and, uh, and then also just being interested in these, I think stories always interested me, you know, and so human stories sort of became the new focus. Um, and that's kind of circuitous as well, sort of what led me over to psychology. Um, thank you for sharing that. Um, Today we have a story from the Gospel of Mark. Uh, folks, some folks may call it a healing story of sorts uh, for Jesus and, uh, and this man and his son. Um, and I'm wondering, folks who come to see you, um, sometimes in the ministry, and you know, we talk about the difference between curing and healing, uh, and how they're not always necessarily the same thing. Uh, I think folks who are hurting, they want immediate cure. Uh, they want the symptoms, whether they be physical or emotional or mental, to, to end quickly. Uh, and here we see, at first you might think that this is what happens for this man, but actually, if you notice in the passage, Jesus asks the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. So this has been a lifelong thing for this family. And so I'm wondering, when folks come to you, uh, um, do folks, I would imagine, everybody wants to, to a, a quick ending to whatever it is that they're going through, but how do you, uh, I mean, and I'm assuming that doesn't always happen so quickly, so how do you prepare them for, this is, could be a journey for you, and this could, this is probably not going to happen in one session. How do you respond to folks who want the quickness and prepare them for what that journey is going to entail? Well, I have a magic pill. What do you do? <laughs> <laughs> wow, okay, collective hope, apparently. Uh, one and done. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, who doesn't want a quick fix? I mean, I do when I'm hurting. Um, I stubbed my toe the other day and uh, said some unkind things uh, and thought, wow, this hurts and this is something quick and, and I know rationally it's going to be done in three minutes um, and, I, and I'm hurting. And I think I like to validate that for people, for myself as well, the times that I've been hurting. Typically, in my experience, by the time people get to me, they've tried those things. Um, they've tried the quick fixes, they've been promised something quick and it hasn't worked out. And so I think it can sometimes be validating to say this is a journey, this is a process, um, and to acknowledge that if you could have found the quick fix, you would have found it by now. Um, often 
people are in some level of desperation. And so sometimes it can be reassuring to know that um, you're not doing anything wrong because you didn't find the magic pill or the magic potion. This is gonna take some time. And so just setting that up for people and also setting the people around who are gonna be able to help them with that, whether it's me or Robert or other people in their lives um, who are gonna be able to step in and step out of them in that long journey and making sure that they feel supported in that. It, it's, a, it's a tough question, I think, um, because um, I think especially uh, in the West, we don't, um, we, don't, we don't like symptoms. You know, I think it's a very Western notion that, that to, to be cured or to be healed is to be without suffering. And so there's sort of even a philosophical sort of uh, conversation sometimes to be had around that. But that, still, this is where we are and this is our context. And I understand when people come in and, and want relief and want it quickly. Um, I, I kind of like what you're saying, uh, Susan, I, I try to suggest in some ways, uh, as I taking a history, uh, we, we identify how what, whatever's happening didn't happen overnight, you know, and so it's not going to disentangle itself overnight in some ways. Um, but I also try to respect the fact that people are looking to, to cope and just get through their days a, a little more easily and with less struggle. And so um, sometimes I try to, I, I think instilling some hope really is, is sometimes the, the most important thing. Um, but I, I often will say that, you know, addressing your symptoms and your suffering and, and helping you with your functioning is certainly part of what we want to be focused on. But how do we tell the story of your distress as well? Um, and I think that sort of implies to people that that, that takes a little longer, uh, that sometimes symptoms have meaning, that there's information in symptoms about um, what's lacking or what we need. Um, and uh, I find more often than not that, uh, that clients um, open up to that as, as part of the journey and, and part of the process. Um, but I mean, that, that reflects a lot of how I work individually uh, with story and narrative and things like that. And there are certainly practitioners out there who, who, who focus more directly on symptom relief. And if that's what a client is looking for, sometimes I think my job in helping them is to connect them with someone who's gonna provide them with a service that they're, um, that's more immediate to their need. Because I just think uh, any, any help uh, is better than no help. Um, and um, so matching a client with um, the particular therapeutic approach I think is an important piece of it too, yeah. One thing that the scripture doesn't really say much about is, for again, for this family who has this uh, child, this, uh, this son who's going through all of these symptoms, and in here they talk about as, as demons. They don't say anything about who might have been surrounding the family, uh, and so um, I find uh, for folks, whether it is someone who is struggling with a, a mental illness, or even for someone who is grieving. Often, if someone is grieving, say you've had a loss of a loved one, and people are often are there for them in the immediate, like I want to be there for you, uh, but then time passes and they might find themselves by themselves. The same with somebody who has a mental health um, issue. So I'm wondering for caretakers, for people who are there, for those who are going through this, how do you, or what would you tell to, to them? What would you say to caregivers, especially, again, knowing that this it, it will not be over in a day? Uh, and so what, how do you, um, what kind of, a, of advice is the right word, but what kind of wisdom do you share with folks who are, <clears throat> who are caregivers and want to be there for somebody in the long term? Um, I, I think uh, 
often what I find myself saying to somebody who's, who's providing care to someone who's suffering um, seriously is that, um, is that you can't do it alone. Um, no one person is enough. No one therapist is, is enough uh, for anybody. Um, and so enlisting others, enlisting their own support, um, it sounds kind of cliche to say, you know, you're, you're only as good a caregiver as, 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 as you are uh, somebody who can give to yourself, but I think that there's some truth to that. So trying to stay balanced and, um, and healthy and, and to know that it's hard. I mean, just to even hear the truth of what they're going through, that that's hard and that that's recognized, I think can be, uh, can be helpful. Um, those are some of my thoughts. Yeah, I'm with you, Robert. Um, and I think I talk a lot about pacing yourself as you're caring for somebody who's long-term struggling. Um, and I talk pretty openly with people about caregiver burnout and how that impacts what they're going through and the desperate need to help and being in there too long might get in the way of the thing that you're trying to do. And so how to how to pace yourself in that and be able to move in and out of that and, and rally your own troops. I talk about get your own support in this, whether that's another therapist or friends or a church group or whatever is a place where people find support as they're caring for people. Um, it's the same thing that we do too, so that we can continue to do this work. Yeah. I got a text and this actually was going into where I was, the next question I was going to ask somebody texted to want to know if there's a spiritual component to therapy. Uh, and what I wanted to also ask, and maybe you can tie these two things together, when we read a passage like this, it seems like the, the two, when you talk about the demonic and demons, uh, I think there are some folks from faith traditions who take that very seriously and will have uh, exorcisms of sorts. And then there are people on the other end of the spectrum who will just roll their eyes at the whole notion of the demonic uh, or of one's demons. Uh, and scholars, when looking at this passage, sometimes will guess, like, well, perhaps this boy had epilepsy. Uh, at the time and place they didn't know how to diagnose that, or they'll think of other things or maybe some sort of mental illness that this boy had. Uh, but I'm wondering, in your own experience in bringing together faith and the work that you do to talk about that question about the spiritual component, and then I'm also curious um, if you've had uh, any kind of pushback at all, uh, if, you, if you bring these things, two things together. And I can see that from two different angles, like for people who maybe, I would imagine there's some in the psychology field who don't want anything to do with religion whatsoever. And there are those from the faith communities who want nothing to do with psychology or psychotherapy at all. Uh, and so going back to the question from the texter, how do you bring these, these two things together? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> you go. <laughs> right, okay, and then you wrap me up. <laughs> um, yeah, so, this is a very real thing, um, and the two bookends are um, people in the church pushing against psychology, and then the other end, people in psychology wanting nothing to do with the church. And then there's two sorts of middle ways, where then you may lean, I may lean one way heavier than the other. Um, I went to Wheaton College for my graduate program, so this was top of mind, being at a really conservative school and having kind of the redheaded stepchild psychology grad school, so we did a lot of interesting and uncomfortable conversations about this. Um, and I think I try not to get too caught up in language with people and try to go more experiential of what their pain and suffering might be about and how we can alleviate suffering. Some people have um, faith labeled words for that and some people don't. And so I try to hang with the client and their experience. Um, as a Christian, it's always spiritual for me. Um, 
I feel that in the room, whether we're talking about it or not. I, I feel that in my office. Um, I was making jokes about it with people this morning about this, and I'm not a typically anxious person. That's not really where I go with my psyche. I go to some other darker places. Um, and I was like, wow, I'm feeling anxious. Is this like spiritual? What is this? This is odd. Um, but whether we call it that or not, it's uncomfortable for people. And so just trying to hang with them on that level and bring relief where we can with wherever they're coming in from. Yeah, I, I probably have had a more, I think, traditional training and, and, and experience where it was a, a sort of a separation between science and religion, you know, uh, and it's kind of through, through my uh, graduate training and beyond. So I, I kind of come from the tradition of, you know, psychologists don't really touch religion. <laughs> um, but, uh, and, I, and, and then being at different places myself spiritually over the years has sort of, I think, impacted that. But I do think there's some truth to that, that uh, clinici clinicians sometimes will shy away from those kinds of issues. Um, I haven't had so much experience either in my religious traditions growing up or through graduate school of having to sort of defend psychology to uh, very religious or conservative people. Um, but just in terms of the question that, that came through by text, um, I, as, as part of my uh, intake with clients, I, uh, my form asks how they identify with regard to religion and spirituality, and it includes everything, runs the whole gamut, and then how, uh, how important that identification is. So I, I feel like I have an opening if somebody identifies uh, with whatever religious tradition and they, they claim it to be a priority. Um, then I, I think of that as a green light to sort of uh, go there. And I have even, even in cases with someone who, who doesn't have uh, a religious tradition or, or faith life, uh, I have found myself saying things like, I, I wonder if this, if this is a spiritual question of, of sorts. But it's with some trepidation that I do that sometimes because people are very private about, about their um, you know, religious life or, or lack thereof. But unlike Susan, I haven't had to really do a lot of sort of... Um, uh, defending again uh, psychotherapy or psychological practice to um, conservative religious types, but uh, so that's on. I wonder if I could ask just kind of on this point to talk a little bit about for you, if you don't mind, for both of you, just personally. So when you, for you when you think about your own personal spiritual life, uh, and I could imagine that perhaps there are times when you are feeling that anxiety, and if it were me, I may just go right into clinical like diagnosing it, like, why am I feeling this? What does this have to say about me and what's going on right now? And then where are those moments, too, where you're just like, Lord, I have no idea what this is about, uh, and, and just kind of leaving it before God. Does that make sense? So I'm curious if you don't mind sharing a little bit about your personal spiritual life and how that plays into it. This was not on the list of questions I gave him. So. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> Let me think first. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that's a great question. Um, I typically blame my psyche for anything. Um, I could have a cough, and I think, is there a truth I'm not speaking? What am I holding back? Like, what's in my chakra that needs clear? And I may have strep throat. Um, so it's a it's it's a thing. It's a thing. And I was thinking, you know, as you're asking this question, Christian, the 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 passage that says, I believe, help me in my unbelief. And so I think, I think I know what this is, and I'm really open to not knowing what this is. Um, and so whether we call it 
pain, whether we call it anxiety, whether we call it a symptom, whether we call it a spiritual struggle, um, I need help with that. And so I don't think that things in my life or in anybody else's life are so simplified to be either this or this. I think it could be spiritual and mental and emotional and societal and biological and, and all of those levels. So I think about tuning into each of those levels and there will be times when spiritual floats to the top more and times that biology floats to the top more. I, I, I think uh, I'm answering the question. Um, <laughs> but I, um, there have certainly been times when I've been so afraid for clients and what they're going through. Uh, and and self-conscious about my own limitations uh, as a helping professional that I have prayed for them. They don't need to know that I'm doing that, but I've done that. Um, so in, in that way, that comes through. But I think the, the biggest way that my own spiritual life influences what I'm doing is that I feel uh, if I am as centered as I can be, and boy, this fluctuates um, in, in my own uh, spiritual life, um, then I'm, I'm just naturally more present uh, for, for, for clients and so um, more available, more open um, and um, I just think I do better work under those conditions. So I, I think a roundabout way of saying if I'm, if I'm taking care of myself spiritually, I think that's very good for my, for my practice, whether you know, clients aren't aware of that, I don't think, but yeah. yeah. We've gotten several texts, and so we're going to kind of close. There are two, I think they're somewhat related, so I'm going to read them both. Uh, the first question is this. Have you dealt with people who have had to distance themselves from family members who do not understand your illness and end up hurting you even more? Is it better to keep close to your family no matter what? And then the other question is this. If a significant other faces constant struggle with depression and mental health issues, how do you support them without prying or perhaps sounding like a nag and checking in with them? Uh, <laughs> So, real easy questions here for you to <laughs> give um, snippets of answers. And um, the, the first one again is sure. related to... Have, if, if, you had, if you have dealt with anyone who's had to distance themselves from family members who don't understand your illness and then end up hurting you even more, mm -hmm. is it better to keep close to your family no matter what? And the other person says, how do I be close but not too close so that they don't yeah. think I'm nagging or whatever? Yeah. Right. Um, I, I don't think it's best to keep close to your family no matter what. <laughs> it's the no matter what part, um, right? I mean, I think ideally, I feel for, for clients a lot who don't have, uh, and I feel very privileged myself to have this sort of network of, of family, extended family that I feel like I can count on. But there are people that don't have that or the people who are there for them. Some of us know this experience. Um, and, and despite our best efforts, contact with those individuals um, or, or trying to work on those relationships it ends up resulting in, um, you know, in, in a worsening of whatever whatever's going on. Um, I have a client now who sort of grew up somewhat estranged from her father, and uh, she struggles with with um, with alcohol. And she just when he pops up on the radar. She just notices that it's it's not a conscious thing, but her, her drinking goes up. You know, the the more she gets a call or, or or texts or interacts with him, and so that's very tough when someone has an ideal of being close to a parent, but there's something in the dynamic that um, that isn't feeling loving, that isn't contributing to their healing, and those are tough tough decisions uh, to make. Um, so that's where I think our our presence as whether as providers or friends to people like this uh, can be so 
important to be consistent, loving presences in people's lives? Um, that's the first question. <laughs> um, wow, these are these are tough questions uh, and real questions. So thank you. Um, so I think as I think about coming from a place of your values and what's important to you and the kind of spouse you want to be and the kind of relationship you want to have and being able to play that out as much as you can within the constraints of your environment. Um, whether that's cultural, whether those are your rules around your marriage, um, I often encourage people to talk about expectations and to think about what would be helpful, what is not helpful. Um, do you need me to keep checking in with you? At what point is it okay for me to keep checking in with you? Um, I will often encourage couples therapy if it's coming to the forefront time and time again without some sort of settling or resolve. Um, but it's different case by case. Um, so talking about that within the, uh, my spouse and I were doing this this morning, we were making jokes like, I'm not typically anxious. He's like, wow, I really don't know what to do for you right now. Um, and so it's like, well, Thanks for that. <laughs> Thanks for nothing. And so, but it, it allowed a conversation to say, you know, oh, here's what I might need or might not need, or here's how you can be supportive or not. I don't think there's a one size fits all. So, if, as much as you're as you're able to have the conversation um, and to respect both people's limitations and capitalize on each of their resources as well. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I have so many other things I could ask, but. Um... Uh, what I wanted to do often after testimony, we pray for the folks who have shared part of their story. And so not only do I want to pray for Susan and Robert, I don't know if any of the folks who were here who uh, from other practices that we've invited to come, they'll be here for the mental health fair. I don't know if they were coming. Uh, if, they, if you want to come up uh, <laughs> so we can pray for you too uh, and introduce you um, and kind of borrow that. So if you wouldn't mind uh, just introducing yourself, uh, I don't know how far this will go. Introduce yourself and let us know what practice you're from. Okay. Uh, my name is Erin Brewer. I am a licensed professional counselor and I actually work at Collective Hope with Susan. Okay. Um, my name is Robin Shannon. I'm also a licensed professional counselor and um, nationally certified counselor. And I am in a Practice in the South Loops for our family clinics. Not too far from here, actually. Hi, I'm Sandy Johnson, and I work with Robin. I work with children um, at Sprout Family Clinics, um, and I'm an LCS uh, My name's Tim, and I'm a marriage and family therapist uh, located in the Loop at Noble Tree Counseling. Great. So uh, in testimony, we, we pray for the folks who are sharing their stories. So if you would, if you feel comfortable where you are, maybe raise a hand uh, as a way of praying uh, and being with these folks. Lord, we give you thanks for those who are gathered here today, for these men and women who have listened to your call and who are there with folks who are hurting. And there are days I'm sure that that gives them life and they know exactly this is what they're supposed to be doing. And I'm sure there are days too where that also weighs on them and wears on them and they wonder, is this where you are calling me to be? In all of those moments where we pray for your blessing and strength upon them, we are grateful for 
the gifts that they share to their clients, um, both here and beyond, and pray that you would continue to be with them as they work with folks no matter what phase of life they are in. We are grateful for the ways that you heal and pray that your healing would be upon them as they share their listening ear and support for others. We lift this to you in Christ's name. Amen. So all these folks will be around after worship today, and you can ask more questions of them. For now, can we give them a hand? Because we're out of the season.